wounds are infectious Like a dog scratched ear The pleasure is high Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show, Being Human. Your train to Barry Island is set to depart. Spit spot. As no one says in the real world. We've made it. We have left Bristol. We are en route to Wales. We have reached Series 3 of the Box Tunnel Pod. Thank you for listening to this part of the journey. Uh, Don't depart now. I'm running out of lame train platform based jokes. So I'm just going to move on. My name is Michael, and coming up, Francis returns to the podcast to dissect with me the first episode of Series 3 called Leah. Just ahead of that, uh, there's actually not cast-based news, but writer-based news, and Toby Whithouse. You might have heard of him? No? Right. Well, I'm going to carry on. Toby Whithouse has had a show commissioned by drama channel Alibi. And uh, this is from the press release. It is a series that follows smart, capable and by-the-book Grace Narayan, who was flying high as an inner-city police sergeant before being forced into a punishment posting on the small, antiquated island of St. Jory. Confronted by the forgotten and unsolved case of a missing teenage boy, Kai, Grace quickly discovers that she must overcome scarce evidence, extraordinary local characters and the island's strange cult history to uncover the truth. So this is a crime drama, and it's got a really strong cast. Anjali Mahindra, who I would watch in anything, in the same way that I'd watch Jenna Coleman in anything. Hey, we all have a shallow streak. We can't deny it. Uh, Jill Halfpunny, Mark Warren, Mark Lewis-Jones, plenty more. In terms of it being a UK TV production, it will, I assume, initially air on at the Alibi channel. If it's anything like... Annika, which is star, which stars Nicola Walker, that has recently made it onto BBC. So I assume it says there's it's a ITV co-production actually. So maybe, so maybe it will end up on ITV rather than BBC. It's very confusing the funding and all this God knows what. But yeah, if you don't have Sky or anything, I'm sure at some stage it will make it to the mainstream media. And, of course, speaking of Toby Whithouse, you can catch up with our interview with him here. It's literally, if you're in the feed, they're literally the episode before this. Myself and fellow fan Sue had a really fun, in-depth chat with Toby Whithouse about the writing process of being human. So catch up with that in the feed. Let's move on then to Series 3, Episode 1. It's called Leah. And the air date was the 21st of January 2011. And now, of course, it's not just a trio of Aidan Turner, Russell Tovey and Lenora Critchlow as the main cast. Sinead Keenan is now a full-time member as Nina and moving in with them. This episode also stars Lacey Turner as Leah, Paul Kay as Vincent, some big newbies in the form of Robson Green as McNair and Michael Soccer as Tom. Here is my chat with Francis. 
Returning to the Box Tunnel Pod, I welcome back Francis. Hi. I'm really happy to be back, especially for this one. Well, that's it. I was going to say, you probably claimed this episode probably about six months ago. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe even earlier than that. I remember when you first put out the word that you were going to do a, uh, this podcast. I remember I wrote kind of a long email <laughs> with the episodes <laughs> I was interested in uh, really far into the show. And you just said, mm, maybe find something a bit earlier on. Um, but I think this one was in there. So before we touch on it in depth, what is it initially about this episode? Is it the Mitchell dynamic to it? Yes. Yeah. Mm, yes. I mean, I do like usually like the Mitchell-centric episodes most in the early seasons, but especially in this episode, it's the Mitchell-Leah dynamic I'm mm -hmm. really interested in. And I think that did something that I very rarely see in TV shows and fiction in general. And the really struck a chord with me this episode going through this episode i mean i th think i knew it before it feels like no other episode in the history of the show does it, it it's yeah. got a unique feel about it and i think that's probably because mitchell's detached and having his one-on-one -on -one, but it's it's and it's so focused on mitchell where literally annie and george are, and nina are kind of major characters uh, minor characters in this one yes you might be right yeah it's really starting his journey for the season. And um, yeah, yeah, you're right. It feels different. I've always liked this episode, but in the back of my mind, I think I've always thought maybe it's kind of slow, a bit slow. And on this watch, I didn't get that feeling because I think the momentum's quite good of everything that happens in it. So I don't know why I've had that in the back of my mind that it's not one of my standout episodes. But obviously for you... Then we'll we'll go through it. It is one of your standout episodes. Yeah, for me it definitely is. But I can't really say whether that is because it's structured very well or something. Um, I think it's just some key scenes that mean a lot to me. Um, and that's why I love it so much. All right. So we begin our Hawaiian dream <laughs> at the new house of Honolulu Heights. Oh, it's such a and beautiful house. This is it. This is... We we literally get the panning shot out from the beach within Honolulu Heights, so that sets you up. We're, we're in somewhere new, we're in somewhere different. Yeah. But what I do notice about this scene also, is it fair to say that Series 3 probably had the biggest budget of, of the whole show? Because they are essentially just standing around, but it looks so good. All the angles, all the, the, the picture is crisper, it all feels more cinematic. Yeah, you might be right. I don't think I ever thought about that. Yeah, I, th I just think it's got an extra edge to it in the way it looks, maybe. But it does make sense, I think. I mean, I know they um, that they should move, uh, that they had to move the production, kind of. Um, and maybe that came with a bit of an enhanced budget to ease yes. the transition. Yeah. And also, I guess, yeah, they had to build a whole new house, the interior yeah. of a whole new house, so yes. It's also fair to say, maybe this is a purposeful choice, that Honolulu Heights isn't actually really in this episode too much. Yeah, you're right. I think this episode focuses more on starting the season off on a, on a character perspective and introducing yeah. the new surroundings, um, not just meaning the house, but um, everything around the house, <laughs> um, the new characters... Um, uh, they'll be interacting with this season. I think it focuses yeah, also, more on that. Yeah, and also, like you say, it's. I think 
partly it's a purposeful choice because a lot of it's centered around the house. It would probably feel too sudden because everyone's so attached to the pink house to suddenly be totally focused on Honolulu Heights might have felt a bit too quick yeah. and uh, too much of an adjustment for people. Yeah, and it isn't. It, there's not a lot going on in the house in this episode anyway. I mean, Mitchell isn't really there, Annie isn't really there. I think um, they probably introduced the house in the next episodes together with the whole cast actually being in the house. Also, another instant reminder that we're somewhere new. We've been surrounded by Bristolian accents now, and now we get a, a very deep Cardiff accent of the estate agent. Yeah, see, I never really noticed that, at least uh, a couple of years ago. Now I do notice that the accents are different, but I couldn't place them. Um, but I do notice that they're different. Um, but that's like, um, to me, that's a very interesting um, development in my own um, understanding of English accents over the years, because I didn't used to hear any difference. And, and really, even longer back, I couldn't even hear the difference between British accents and American accents. Really? Yes. And then for the longest time, I didn't hear the difference between British accents and Australian accents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And it's getting better and better. Um, the more time goes on. And now I do hear so the differences between uh, Bristol and, and Carter, for example. So to you, uh, I now lo- no longer sound like Mitchell. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it did t- take a while. The A big bonus of this new house is the fact that there's a cellar and Nina and George go check it out. But meanwhile, after some awkward conversation from George, Mitchell is distracted by the TV yeah. and Annie appears. Oh, yes. I've got a big question. (laughs) How can Annie find them by the TV and know where they are? Um, I don't know. I'm thinking... Why don't you know? I want to know. Yeah, I think the episode really doesn't care about that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it really doesn't care. And maybe we could argue that um, since Leah is involved anyway with um, what Annie's doing and how when they see her, when they meet her, um, and what Annie thinks is happening to her. I think we can argue that just Leah um, kind of uh, showing showing everybody what they need to see in the moment. Yeah, she almost it's Leah manipulating the airways because we know from things like the, the, what happened with Saul. Yeah, you're right. That, they that, can do that. that. They can be tuned into the certain pathways that they need to be. Yeah. Okay, I'll let it off. (laughs) But I thought it was really interesting how nobody's really all that excited about the house. I mean, George is excited about the cellar a bit, like in theory. But nobody really wants to move there. No, Uh, this is true. I mean, yeah, I mean, we love it because it's quite, as fans, because it's quite a unique, weird, eccentric place. But... I mean, in real life, if I was walking around the house being shown that, I'd be like, this is a shithole. Yeah, definitely. But what I thought when I saw the cellar again with this rewatch, I thought that in a weird way, it kind of symbolizes this next step in George's and Nina's relationship, doesn't it? Because hmm. it's this place they can put the wolf reliably for the foreseeable future, in a way. So it's like... Um, moving on from this constant, oh God, what are we going to do this month kind of thing. Um, so maybe it's like the step forward towards this bit more settling down, a bit more domesticity. Um, we've got this house now, we've got the cellar, we can concentrate on other things. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. Yeah. (laughs) I know it doesn't really work. (laughs) There'd be no fun in that working. No. Uh, But what I do really like is once Mitchell's talking to the TV and, like, this estate agent thinks they're absolutely potty. (laughs) Yeah. She she says, (laughs) I know they're shit on nowadays. Thank God for Terry Pratchett's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know quite how early it was known to the cast and and the writers that Aiden was leaving for The Hobbit. But I don't know if there's a little grain of a joke in there. There's a a bit of a knowing in-joke. I think they didn't know until like the very last episode. That's the impression I get, yes. I think they even shot like half of the episode already and then there was Aiden and they had to they had tried to rewrite uh, the episode and they ended up only rewriting um pretty much the last scene I think and but it was very last minute they reluctantly agree to take this house they don't want any work no. done on it I mean Mitchell doesn't even care he really doesn't <laughs> yeah. give, care at all in the whole episode what's happening other than finding Annie he's like yeah whatever yeah totally <laughs> I don't care how much it costs I don't care what it looks like yeah he's very focused in the next scene we have a weird I always think this is a bit of an abrupt start to introducing some new characters because there's no exterior shot or anything we are literally slam dunk in the middle of a conversation between tom mcnair yeah so it just feels a bit like whoa who are these people even now even though i know who they are it's just like whoa yeah you're right i think in the beginning i didn't even really notice the scene all that much until i realized later on in the season that these characters were important yeah but we get their dynamic straight away Tom is wanting to go sneak into the cinema and McNair just cares whether there's naked ladies in it. <laughs> yeah, that's parenting. <laughs> um, yeah, so they do leave, as we later learn that one of McNair's saying is, it's not stealing if it's a big shop. McNair, pay- McNair pays up this time. Yeah. They've got a business to run. And then he's off out and leaves Tom on his own. And then he's accosted by... A vampire called Vincent and his gang in the fairground. He's called Vincent. I don't think I ever got his name. He, Do they say it? He, he, no. I had to look it up to find out what his name was. <laughs> what are your views on Vincent? My first um, instinct, I think, always is, oh my God, he's trying to be Spike. See, I don't know enough. Of... Oh, that's interesting. Is it because of the haircut or the way he's it's acting? Everything. Or... No, no, it's everything. It's the hair. It's even the clothes. It's the shoes. It's clearly an homage, a very, very filthy homage to <laughs> Spike. Oh, that's interesting because I don't really know enough about Buffy. I know that's scandalous. I know I shouldn't be doing a podcast about vampires if I don't know enough about Well, you've got me Buffy, for that. But... <laughs> um. Yeah, Paul Kay, who plays him, he's he's a brilliant actor. He's a very eccentric actor. He's been in loads of things over the last 20 or so years, playing quite quirky characters. Around this time, he's in one of my other favourite TV shows. It's a sitcom on BBC Three, a puppet-based sitcom called Mongrels. Uh-huh. I've never heard of it. And he did, he did the voice, and weirdly, he was called Vince in that. <laughs> In Mongrels, he plays a sweary fox who just calls everyone a cunt. <laughs> well, that that kind of fits. It kind of fits. But in this, I just think it feels like he's been airlifted into an, from another show into this one. 
it feels a bit extra in terms of performance to me. Yeah, maybe, but I don't think I ever get that great a feel for him because he isn't in it very long. No, that's true. That's true. Did you know much about Robson Green? I didn't know. No, because Robson Green, this this is when this was cast, this is a really left field choice. Because okay. he'd been in over the years he'd been in lots of very mainstream early evening ITV dramas and he was a pop star with Jerome Flynn in the mid nineties. Right. Singing ba- basically singing Unchained Melody and things like that. They were huge. <laughs> My mum loved them. They were massive. And recently as he he's he's got older, he's he's done a bit more darker dramas, I suppose. He also does a does a programme nowadays about fishing, but we'll overlook that. <laughs> but this, as this a choice, when when this was cut then the casting was announced, it's Robson Green is going to be a werewolf. It just did not make any sense. Everyone was just like, that cannot work. And it does. I, I think yeah. he's so brilliant in the role. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, honestly, I will send you links after this yeah. and you'll go, what on earth? Yes, please do. <laughs> so, yeah, he's beaten up by the vampires and taken away in the van and Tom can't get them in time. We know already, we know that they're going to meet George and Nina at some time because there's no point in them being in there. Yeah. And George and Nina, then, uh, they have a bit of a bedroom scene. <laughs> yeah. It, tr- it, try- it tries to be sexy. Yeah, it's a bit of a fail. And uh, to paraphrase George, that is some mad hair they've got there. It is, yeah, it really is. It, it's a thing with series three because once Annie returns from purgatory, spoilers... She has massive hair too. What is it? This is I think this is part of the budget. Yeah, maybe. You're right. The hair got a bit of an overhaul, but they couldn't afford <laughs> shampoo for Mitchell. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't think he wants it. Yeah, probably not. Um, so, yeah. But I have one friend that always complained about his greasy hair. Always. I made them watch the show and they really, really liked it. But everything they ever could say about Mitchell was that he has really, really greasy hair. Uh, yeah, but some, some ladies like that. Yeah, I don't think they did. Just You should have just got her to watch series one of Being Human and let, leave it at that. Yeah, no, they, they did rewatch the whole thing. Uh, uh, they did just watch uh, the whole series, but I don't think they ever got over the hair. Speaking of hair problems, they're lovely jiggly happy time is interrupted because it gets caught in George's glasses and, and Mitchell great crashes proceedings and gra- tries to grab a radio in, in an effort to contact Annie. What I find interesting about this scene, Nina of course is not Mitchell's biggest fan no. but George and as we know from the end of series 2 as he said to Mitchell I can't be your confessor Yeah. George knows that Mitchell is responsible for the box tunnel 20. He does. There's another t- scene in this episode that also touches on that. Yeah. But he's so... He, he doesn't tell Nina that he knows. No. And also he's, he's still defensive of his friends. Yeah, he tries no to forget what. about it, I think. He just tries to yeah. move on, leave it behind. They moved, it's fine. And tries well, to guess... just keep it all together. I guess, as he says at the end of series two, he says, well, I've got Nina to think about now. Yeah. 
and he's he's just trying to pretend it didn't happen, I suppose. Yes, yes, I think so. It's only I think in in, in which episode is it? Um, the episode when when Herrick shows up again. That's when he first acknowledges kind of that to Mitchell that he knows again. Yeah. And and does something with that knowledge. Until then, yeah, it's just it. let's not talk about it, and please leave it behind us. I'm trying to move on with Nina. How very British. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> All right, so next up we are at the corridors of a new hospital and George and Nina have clearly settled into the old routine, but this time Mitchell is with them. Uh, Nina is tipping them off on a patient with just hours of life left within him. And George is furious about this. He says there's enough going on without you crossing over to the afterlife. (laughs) And Mitchell snaps back. I'll take everything they've got. Death, God, the devil, none of it frightens me. <laughs> it really sounds kind of obsessive, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, I get that he's trying to get Annie back, and we all love him for that. But it's very, very single-minded in this episode. He really doesn't care about anything else. I think he's, yeah, I think it's a, a continuation of to where we left series two, because he was so, he's, he's doing it in this episode too, he was so transfixed with the news. Yeah. And he still is in this episode, and obviously he's he's his focus now is on getting Annie, and he's just it almost is part of going to get Annie. I mean, Leah plays this card later. Yeah. Part of it might be the guilt. Yes. Oh, you're right. You're right. It really is a continuation from the last season because um he only really snapped out of it in the end of season two because Annie was gone, and he felt that. And that brought him back in a way. So he's, I suppose he's holding on to that and holding on to her so he can hold on to himself to be very poetic about it. Yeah. Right? And yeah, and, and you're, you're totally right. And also, of course, Nina has that guilt and she had that at the end of series two with all the tracking down of Lucy and stuff. Yeah. But she's kind of more in the George frame of mind. We've got to move on. Obviously, she wants Annie back because she's helping Mitchell. Yes. Go through, go through the doorway, but Mitchell was so immersed in his own guilt and conscience and everything, he, he just can't let it go. Yeah, I think the difference really is that George and Nina really want Annie back, but Mitchell needs her. He needs her to be back, to move on with anything. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great little scene as they're waiting for this guy to die. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, I think this is weirdly kind of a, a throwback in the kind of scene they would have had in series one, but it, not in the house. It's it's them just bickering at each other and annoying each other, but waiting for a guy to die in front of them. Yeah, you're right. And the machine bleeps and the ghost of the man stands over his bed. And Mitchell, as subtle as ever, I'm afraid you've just died, gets a disparaging look from George. <laughs> yeah, his people skills are very good. And he says, are you deaf? He says, no, I'm not deaf. <laughs> the crossword, I think, is quite an interesting thing. They, I think they've missed a trick here. Oh. Because oh. the cr- crossword or the word search clue was H2O. Yeah. The seat, the seat that Mitchell's on later is H12. Just imagine if Mitchell's the, the seat that Leah had been in was H twenty. Oh, you're right. Ah, oh, yeah, you're right. See. Yeah, that's that's a missed opportunity. 
God, I should have written this. Yeah. I think that was his contrast when Mitchell was um, standing with Sean and helping him cross over that this was a very like very peaceful scene and he was his guide and he was holding his hand and he was yeah. very nicely guiding him um, towards the afterlife. And it's a stark contrast, I think, to what we later get with Leah, which is very violent. And her and how she died was very violent. It was very um, forced and she was alone. And I just think to put Mitchell in this situation right in the beginning of this episode is a very interesting choice. Yeah, and also this door, it's debatable what's a good door and what's a bad door <laughs> for Devin being human. But it, there's no threatening glow from it when it appears. Yeah. So can we assume Sean's going to a good place? I think the show doesn't really think about this too much. But maybe? But I do. Okay, well then, <laughs> then I think we can assume that he's going to a good place. I think, Sean, I think he's lived a good life. He's a good man. Probably, yeah. Let him, let him have some peace. I'm, I'm going to let him have some peace. Let him have some peace. And also, it's a, it's a nice little touch of uh, the music being played, Gilbert's Door. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's being played as well. It's probably just the door music by now. Yeah. Uh, George fights back the tears. Of course, walking into purgatory is quite an unknown quantity. So he, George has no idea how long Mitchell's going to be, if he's ever going to come back, if he can come back at all, because obviously they don't know they're going into the unknown. Yeah. Obviously, Annie briefly snapped out of purgatory at the end of series two. And only supernaturals would be able to see and access the doors. How is your view of of the use of corridors in being human and how how Mitchell accesses it? Uh, it's it's we're back to the door logic. I think the doors always do what the writers need them to do in the episode. Yeah, kind of. Unfortunately, I'd like for there to be a bit more uh, continuity in how doors work. But I don't think there is. Yeah, I guess the premise of what Mitchell does here doesn't stray too far away from Baby Eve in Series 4. Yeah, but they only could do that because they did it with Mitchell before. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, if we're really trying to question this, there's so many questions. Why doesn't he end up in Sean's corridor? But why does Annie later end up in Eve's corridor? <laughs> The, 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 I don't think there's too much logic in this. Uh, yeah, Leah says he's he's gone on his own. Well, well, we'll, we'll get to it a bit later because we'll focus on that last. But yeah. Leah says... He's got his own stuff I guess to do, she, I think. Yeah, once you go through the door, you're in your own purgatory. Yeah, but it doesn't no work like that doing. with Annie and with Eve. And I mean, no, it doesn't, does it? With Annie, they have this whole thing in season two where it's bad to go through the wrong door or whatever, and they never pick that up again. And then she goes through East Door, and it doesn't matter at all. And it's, I don't think there's too much logic in this. Damn it. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the all kind right, of stuff well, we just got to ignore. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> we'll focus on uh, Tom and McNair for a bit now, and the next time we see McNair. It's being led into a cage with a bag on his head, surrounded by the eccentric Vincent and baying vampires. He's followed by a human off the street called Paul Jameson. Uh, McNair looks like he's been through this before. 
and Paul is given a knife as Full Moon strikes McNair, stands tall and hairy, and rips the poor man to shreds. Again, if we're talking about a different tone for the show, this is quite an extreme new dynamic for the show, isn't it? The cage fights. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's a new escalation to the vampire werewolf dynamic. Yeah, it's it's almost... I mean, we've had hints of it before, like well, werewolves and vampires don't get on, obviously, but this is vampires using werewolves as playthings and in control of them as, as, as you know, as yeah. almost being their owners. Yeah, I think it's really part of um, introducing this new setting to us and showing us what things are like here and we've got, what we've got to expect here, what kind of stops, stuff's happening. Um, this, this, I think that's why this feels so new and so violent, because um, it's just something very different that didn't happen in Bristol. And it's part yeah. of this new setting. Yeah, and the next morning, Vincent has a one-way conversation with a still-caged and bloodied McNair. He senses something, stands up and gets himself dressed, and he says, My name is McNair. No, you misunderstand, you see. I can't deliver it like Robson. I can't I can't fish like Robson Green, and I can't act like Robson <laughs> Green. Uh, I, t- I told you my name because I want it to be the last thing you hear. And then Tom creeps up behind him and stakes him. Yeah, that's very badass. He's very badass, and there's a fucking terrible joke. As he's been, as he's been stabbed, steak and chips. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> Who gets stabbed? <laughs> Just a general question. In fact, I need. I got to think of a really bad joke right now. <laughs> yeah, he managed. He managed. He managed. He managed. Um, yeah, I would say, thank God. We don't have to see him anymore because yeah. we we didn't need any. I, I, Paul K is great, but it's too much. You are right. I agree, but it that this um, it did show. Um, I think it really established something about uh, Tom's character and McNair because they really are something, someone to be reckoned with when it comes to vampires. They really know their stuff. They know how to kill them, and they kill this characters character that we could have assumed would play the part of a minor villain in the series mm. yeah I... that's it yeah and also, also we don't we don't really get a lot of tom other than obviously he's he's very not not worldly wise but we don't get a lot of him in this episode so it's a very gradual build-up with tom isn't it definitely yeah but you you get you know the impression like that mcnair is in control really yeah okay so the next time we see george he's in the woods dragging his chicken on a string and he spies tom across the way and they have a chicken off uh tom makes a break for it and george gives chase and is stopped by a friendly man in the car park <laughs> watch your play he asks my sciatica's back so I'm just going to watch Sue and Peter in the Volvo and touch myself. <laughs> you know, I never used to get this scene at all when I was younger. Really? I, yeah, really. I mean, I was this arrow ace teenager. I really had no clue what they were going on about. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took some years and some rewatches to really understand what was happening here. Uh, he notices George's chicken. He says, listen, we don't do funny stuff here. You'll have to go to Swansea for that. <laughs> <laughs> they're soon swarmed by the police um i'm not sure they'd be arrested just for talking in a car park 
I mean, unless they've got a really big reputation as doggers. I think they do, actually. I think it's the kind of, like, we spot for that. I would say I'd research it, but I'm not going <laughs> to. No, but it seemed to me like this group, they really knew each other and they knew what they were doing and what they were there for. So it always uh, seemed to me like they were doing this every month. George and his new friend are locked into a cell with the process of transformation starting. And George... Oh, yeah, this is kind of the opposite situation to the the end of series one where he was locked in a cell with Herrick. He was willingly locked in a cell, but now it's against his will. Oh, yeah, you're right. He says, kill me or I will tear your fucking head off. <laughs> it's also just the, the weirdest way to ever get arrested. Nina arrives at the station dealing with the moon a lot better than a panicked George, claiming to be his carer, which is kind of true. <laughs> In a way, yeah. He gets released and they scarper to find an abandoned... I mean, God knows what it is, like a... I really don't not know. really a house, is it? It seems like a kind of cellar. But they have to transform together. So, yeah, like you say, the cellar plan, that lasted well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think it doesn't really work ever in the season, does it? Did they ever use it? No. No. No, because that would be too boring. Yeah. But I really like what this episode is showing about their dynamic because it seems like they're a lot more stable as a couple now even in, in the scene uh, where they're transforming together um they say each other that they love each other and there's a lot more stability and trust in their relationship i think it's just a bit yeah. sad that they're trying to establish this uh, new dynamic um of being a bit more domestic, of settling down, and they get constantly disturbed by Mitchell trying to get the radio or by <laughs> the werewolf stuff, by the police. It's always something, and it kind of doesn't work out. Yeah, it's like they've come through the other side from a, a pretty tough series too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Again, this is a new this is a new element to their the werewolf storyline in being human because they have to transform together. Uh, the morning after, the second pervy ass comment of the episode is George walks wakes up to find Nina alive and sensibly covered up. Uh, George looks down at his wolf stick, Willie. Mm. I'm just going to call it a wolf stick. Yeah. And has a moment of realisation. He thinks they had hairy werewolf sex the night before. I don't know how he knows this. Usually, you'd have to pee in it to spray everywhere. Yeah, I've always tried not to wonder about this for too long. <laughs> Yeah, there's a kind of, hang on a minute, did we actually do it? Yeah, you're right. You, you do not want to talk about this. I do don't, you? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still very arrow aid. <laughs> All right, let's get on to the, the crux of this episode then. Leah and Mitchell. Yeah. So yes, Mitchell is transported to a dark, dingy hallway. Forever, whatever the rules are or, or whatever, in doors and corridors and being human. I kind of like that they were in the hospital and this is kind of like a continuation. The corridors are like a continuation of the hospital corridors, just long and dark. Yeah. So it's a kind of from almost like a alive in the hospital to death on the other side. It's kind of a probably not intended touch, but it's kind of a nice touch. Yeah, you're right. It does seem like it a bit. It's like a, a hospital by night or something. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and obviously just with the, yeah with the lights off. Yeah, uh, we meet Leah for the first time, and on first impressions, she's a cheeky Londoner. And he says, "So you're my guide then." What are your thoughts on 
you know, when you first watched this, what your first thoughts on Leah as the show was going on? Do you remember? Mm, I don't think I remember, but um, I'm pretty sure I was just a bit confused by her because she's a very mysterious character. Even in the beginning, we don't really know what her deal is. She's avoiding answering some questions right from the get-go. Um, so I don't, I, I probably really didn't know what to do with her. No. Well, she's very passive-aggressive, but obviously when we learn why, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. But I think without knowing that, in the build-up to it, it feels very over-the-top and very in-your-face, like the flirting and the and the microaggression almost. Yeah, the flirting's a lot. Yeah. Almost kind of a bit like Daisy. She's both angry and flirtatious. A bit. Yeah, you're right. It's a similar vibe. Uh, she's very familiar with Mitchell and this confuses him. And he's, he says, have we met before? She leans in and whispers, H12. Uh, Leah explains that this is Mitchell's own purgatory, something he admits to. This is quite an interesting one. He admits to having been there before. He does? Yeah. Really? I didn't notice that. Yeah, he kind of says, yeah, I, I, something along the lines of, I know this place. or Oh, right. Yeah. Oh. And Leah says, we've all got a corridor filled with all the good things and the bad things. And well, you've been busy. Yeah, yes. <laughs> First room, France, July 17th, 1917. We see that Mitchell has poisoned a corporal before he feasted on him. Yeah. It was his first kill as a vampire. He's trying to get out of this room so fast. Yeah. I mean, the other ones too. <laughs> but here's when you really first see that he knows what's, uh, what this whole thing is going to be about now. And he's just trying to leave. Uh, two interesting aspects here. I think it's great to be transported back into Mitchell's past and not just in the use of the flashbacks that we've seen a lot of, but also that this is the first room where we can see kind of it expands on the recruitment during the war. Yeah. So obviously we we know Herrick took him in the war and now we can see, you know, his first kill wasn't that long after. Yeah. I think Leah kind of plays a manipulating psychologist in, in this well, the whole episode, but especially this this room. Also, I like the little nod where she says, I'm the victim. Yeah, you think, is, is it manipulative to you? I don't know if I think it's manipulative. I think she's trying to draw something out of him. Ooh, I think she's in control. And yes. That's, yeah, I, it, it, that, if she's trying to coax something out of it, it could be classed as manipulative. Yes, maybe. When she says, I'm the victim, like two minutes ago, you were here topless, <laughs> and I've just missed you. <laughs> yeah, she's just playing with the situation a bit, in a yeah. very, very dark, humoristic way. Yes, and the radio flickers from the music, and Annie pierces through. They're taking me to a room, they're going to a parade, they'll scatter ashes in front of me like petals, they said. Yeah, I never really understood um, what it was, what she really saw there. And, I mean, I think later it's revealed that it n nothing Annie really uh, experienced in, in, in this part of her afterlife um, really had anything to do with her. It happened. It was all constructed just by, by Leah. Um, but it, it, it definitely sounds scary. Oh. Isn't it? You know what? I think you might be right. <laughs> are you, are you, so what you're saying is... Oh. 
any TV and radio transmissions that Annie was doing was just in her voice. No, I don't. No, I don't think so. But I think um, that what Annie was experiencing and what we then, what she then told to Mitchell, what was happening around her and what she was scared of happening to her, I think all of that was Leah. Like putting yeah. her in this situation. Ah. Yeah, because but when we see Annie at the end, she never really moves from exactly where she was. Yeah, it was all just I, I her didn't... being scared. Scared and probably being told things would happen, or she hearing things yes. that might happen, and then just Leah comes up and says, "Oh no!" But the real um, purpose of her fear seems to be to well, you're right, it's to manipulate Mitchell. This part really is manipulation. I never viewed it from that. I always kind of had it down that that was the first hand experience of Annie, but it doesn't make sense with how we see Annie at the end. Yeah, yeah, I think the part with Annie really is. Um, the biggest part of the manipulation that Leah does. I think her conversations with Mitchell are more her trying to coax something out of him. Yeah. Um, I mean, when they talk about, uh, like, when Leah says, I'm sure that's what Arthur would have wanted. It's really just trying to get Mitchell to think in the direction he really doesn't want to think. This is true. Yeah. It, uh, making him feel uncomfortable to get something from him. Yeah, but not just to get something from him, but also just to get him in a place, uh, to the place you need him to get to, to have the, the conversation they have at the end. It's, I think yeah. it's all basically one conversation. The, the, all the Mitchell-Leo scenes are one conversation that lead up to the big moment in the end. And I think this is all part of that. It's all her well, this... trying to get him to be in the place where they can have this confrontation. This whole episode then is that, well, she mentions it at the end, a long game. Yeah. You know, this is a form of the long game that she does in this episode, but the whole series, the whole series is Leah's long game. Yeah. But this, I think this episode, it does set up the season. It just set up um, the wolf-shaped bullet thing, definitely. But it's also a bit contained in itself. Yeah, it's one conversation. In my mind, it's one conversation between a victim and their abuser. And it's yeah. this confrontation they're having. And this is kind of contained in itself and doesn't have all that much to do with the plot of the season. No. It is the starting it's also, point. It's also a conversation between a victim and abuser where the abuser doesn't even realise. Definitely. I think that's the case with yeah. lots of abusers. Yeah. In the corridor, Mitchell is getting agitated, but Leah is full of riddles. And she says, "Make tra- let's make tracks to the next room. Yeah. Uh, the next bit has always made me laugh. Into the next room, uh, Mitchell's face is full of doom as he's asked where they are. And as Leah asks where they are, and he says, oh, God, <laughs> Sheffield. <laughs> but it's, it's it's fascinating that he remembers everything, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's it was uh, the 24th of December, but it is kind of a random kill in the 60s, isn't it? I've been to Sheffield once. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> Yeah, so why does he remember everything? I mean, he probably does remember everything in a way, but it's remarkable that he does. Yeah, that's true. But then, yeah, he has said that before. He remembers every kill. He remembers every victim, what they were wearing. Yeah, you're right. What what perfume they were wearing. But this is a callback to that then. Yeah. That you really can place him in any of these rooms and he can tell you what the situation is. Yeah, it's December 24th, 1960, and there's a dead lady on the floor in lingerie. Yeah. 
Leah picks apart the psychology behind this killing compared to the previous one. Yeah, I think as we discussed in the the Looking Glass episode, with Josie in series two, Josie knew how to play Mitchell without the knowledge of his crimes or what he'd committed. Yeah. But Leah is doing the same thing here, but with the full access to his present and his history. Yeah, yeah, you're right. She does. I think also think um, they're moving on to a new stage in this conversation they're having in this room. I mean, the first room, um, it was like this, this starting point of getting him in the right mindset. And now they're talking about this victim narrative. They're talking about him being in control, out of control. And it's like it's Mitchell starting to justify it all. He didn't really do that that much in the first room. Um but this room is like he was I think he says at one point it was a compulsion I'm not that man anymore and mm. um, that's also to me that's like alarm bells going because you've got this abuser saying no I moved on from that and he's saying that to his victim and um, that's, that's a very difficult situation I mean he, no he doesn't he doesn't know it at this point but that's really him trying to say well I moved on from the situation so, so you can as well in a way yeah he knows, he knows that it's not true because literally just weeks ago he tore up a train to exactly. twenty people. Yeah, it's it's just his mind working, trying to get him to, yeah, not confronted. It's that constant debate that he's probably had with him for himself for a hundred years. Yeah. Kill. Oh no, I'm changing. I'm being human. I'm I'm being normal. Kill. Yeah, back again. Definitely. Back again. He also... Whereas someone like. He also readily Eric accepted her victim narrative um, yeah. that she proposed in the last room. He picks that up in this room again and says, well, I was the victim. Yeah. And, and and a vampire like Herrick just didn't have any of that guilt or conscience. He just lived as he was. Yeah. And also, it, Mitchell is not being helped by living with Annie and George. Yeah. Because he doesn't really have the people there to... Because they are, you know, human at heart. They've got all the, you know, compassion and understanding that every time, and probably sometimes a bit of gullibility, that every time he says, oh, I'm not doing it anymore, they try and help him and they and they overlook. Look what George is doing this whole series. He's overlooking what Mitchell's done and he knows. You're right. Although I do think out of all of them, well, may- maybe Nina, but Nina doesn't know what he's doing, uh, what he has done. So I think George is the one that knows the most and also is thereby the most aware of what he's capable of and really what his state of mind is. He's just ignoring it, but he's the most aware of who Mitchell really can be. Yeah, I mean, Nina doesn't know about the box tunnel exactly. 20 yet, but she knows who he is well i think i don't think she does really i think nina's um nina's dislike of mitchell is really more grounded in her really don't liking vampires in general yeah and his just general uh way of being he doesn't really uh, assure her (laughs) in any way um but i think nina's dislike of mitchell is just mainly her not liking vampires George has a more nuanced understanding of who Mitchell as a person and as a vampire is and what he personally is capable of. Nina, in the term, in what we're talking about, in the sense that they don't tell each other everything. Yeah. 
Nina will not have a full understanding of Mitchell's past like George does. Yeah. So yeah, she'll know, she'll know he's done some kills or whatever, but she won't know certain stories or certain aspects of it. Yeah, so, exactly. So Mitchell says, why are you bringing me to this places? And Leah says, you chose the door. Next time you pick one while you're building an orphanage <laughs> on the other side. Yeah, he should. He really should pick one of those. <laughs> I like how uh, Leah is showing him up in this scene, really. Uh, at one point, she says, I should be a bit more respectful about the people you kill. And it's yeah. like this uh, hammer in his face trying to justify it all. Yeah, but he's got n- nothing because he, he's squirming because yeah. he knows she's right. Exactly, and she's just exposing the act he's trying to put on. But I, mean, I guess part of why he's squirming and agitated and panicked is because he doesn't know who she is. Yeah. He doesn't know what the purpose of, you know, he thinks the purpose of going through all these doors might eventually just result in him staying in purgatory yeah. forever. He, you know, obviously he's he's scared, but he, that, that's the way he's lashing out. Yeah. Also, he's just he just thinks she's someone he can put his narrative onto. She doesn't know yeah. him, he thinks, so he can just say what he feels is right about himself, what he's trying to tell himself, and she might believe it. And also, Leah makes a great comparison between the other guy who, like, you know, the first kill, slipped him some drugs, did it while he was unconscious, to a night of sex and lust, yeah. and then no slipping a pill or anything she's that's almost like the evolution whereas we're talking about like mitchell saying oh no i'm better i don't do that anymore yeah. but as we see he goes along his timeline doing more and more but with more awareness yes exactly yeah what he says he's doing and feeling and how he inter- inter- tries to interpret his own actions doesn't work at all with, with what we're seeing okay anything else in that room or should we get to the next one let's get to the next one Let's get to the next door. Uh, <laughs> Leah insists uh, he doesn't have to do it at the next door. And after a little wobble, he says, I need to do this. And cue a great shot as we quickly learn that Mitchell is on that train carriage. I fucking love that shot. Oh, definitely. It's so good. I think uh, we could, even when we saw the episode for the first time, we probably, most of us could see it coming because that this door has been there since the first time he stepped foot in their corridor. And he's always been avoiding it. He's always been looking at it. He's choosing every other door. Um, yeah, because it... he, he, he scans up and down, doesn't he? He paces around and looks at it and walks away. Yeah. And, yeah, so he walks down past his victims to see Leah sat on the seat H12. Yeah. She says, I've got to say, I was a kind of hurt that you didn't recognise me, given you remembered so much about the other two. And Mitchell mumbles apology <laughs> and half-assed excuses, as he's done all episode. Yeah. Uh, Leah introduces him to the 12 good men and true, although there is 20 of us and nine were our women. But I'll crack on. <laughs> <sighs> I didn't see it coming, but perhaps because I'm stupid at the time. But I just, I, I, I generally, when I watch TV shows, I like to just go along with the ride of it happening. Yeah. So I didn't predict that happening at I all. I don't know if I did. It's been a very long time ago. Leah introduces some of the people on the train. Donna, a primary school teacher whose pupils have had counselling. Glenn, who had five kids. Mary, who'd just recovered from breast cancer. Funny, isn't it, the ripples of your actions? Yeah, they've got this dynamic going on in the first part of the conversation here, where it's always Mitchell trying to apologise or trying to justify something, and it's always um, her answering with, well, look at this person. 
this is what happened. Oh, look at me. This is the life I had. And mm. it's always to show how absolutely insufficient this kind of apology is trying to make us because it doesn't have anything to do with what he unleashed, what happened to them. It doesn't have anything to do with the victims, really. It's just about himself trying to say, oh, but I'm sorry, what can I do about it? Yeah, and what Lee is doing here, when Mitchell is in one of those moments of, you know, tearing up a train or, or killing a girl in lingerie, he's dehumanising them. Totally, yes, he's, he's whereas, erasing them, even. Whereas, whereas Leah is t- saying, look at this person, they had five kids, look at this person, they, they had this job. And then she says about herself, I was 22, I had a peanut allergy, I wanted to be a vet, I had a little brother that I loved more than anything in the world. Yeah. Mitchell, even through his guilt, post-kill, he's not analysing you know, yeah. the lives that each individual person has. He's just got the guilt that he's killed someone. He's not, you know, as Leah says, it's the ripples of your actions. Yeah, exactly. He's just focused on himself. That's, I think that's, that's, that's exactly why I um, like this episode so much, really. Because I think a lot of people have kind of experiences with this victim-abuser relationship. I'm, that doesn't have to be just a partner. It can be a friend. It can be your parents. And I really connect to this because I have a very strained relationship with my parents. And when mm. I first watched this show in this episode, I was still living with my parents. So it was all very real and fresh. And um, in this scene, you've really got um, the abuser, in this case Mitchell, um, not understanding what is required of him because he's trying to kind of make it better. He does see that something's not working, but he's trying to apologize and that is focused on himself. He's trying to say, well, I don't know what to do, but that is also focused on himself. He really doesn't see what he's Mm. done and what it did to the people around them. And that this whole situation really shouldn't be about him. Yeah, it's cent- like you say, it's all centred about the- his feelings and the- his fallout. Yeah. Uh, Leah lays out the human tragedy that he can't hide from in the cold light of day, and she says, the arrogance to call yourself a victim. Yeah, Yeah, that's a very, a very powerful line <laughs> in my mind. Uh, Leah pushes him further until he flips. I'm an animal. I don't deserve mercy or forgiveness. I'm a murderer. I couldn't help myself. I loved it. The sensation, the power, I was dead. But I'd never felt so alive. I wasn't human anymore. I'd lost my conscience. I was free. And that's what I was addicted to. I hacked my way through the world. I left a trail of blood a thousand miles long. And I loved it. I'm a disease. I'm a plague. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And he hangs his head in shame. Yeah. And that's really the scene I connected to so much and I still do because I think there's this basic desire um, of many people that have experienced trauma uh, on other people's hands um, this desire to put like the pain where it belongs to the people that inflicted this onto you but because they don't have to deal with it but you do and you have to live with it but you didn't really uh, earn this in any way and so it feels like justice to to put it back to give it back to them because they should have this and it really feels like you're this, this like invisible byproduct of someone else's pain. We all know Mitchell, and we all kind of love Mitchell. Um, 
and he's the main character, one of the main characters of this story. Um, so it's easy to forget about, as she said, the ripples, the people that just fall through the cracks that he kills um, at one point or another. And we don't really think about them because he's our focus. And that's really what it feels like to be in this kind of relationship. Like you're not, you're not the main character. You're the byproduct in someone else's story and someone else's pain. And you just happen to fall through in a way. And she really, really gives voice to that. And that, that was very important to me. And it still is because I haven't really mm. seen that anywhere else. Most shows don't dare to put their main characters that have done awful things on the spotlight to, like, like that and to expose them like that and to really show the audience that we may love them, but there are people that have been hurt by their actions and they matter and we should think about them. And isn't that like a fine balancing act to do as a writer? Probably. To, to, to get your, you know, character to basically kill and maim and hide and, and, and lie about it. Yeah. And still have an audience affection for. Exactly. For him. But I would say I do have affection for Mitchell, but not, not in a fan, you know, whatever the fan girl or fan boy thing was at the time. Having affection for him as a as a TV character, yeah, I wouldn't have affection for him in the same way that I for Annie or George or Nina, yeah, because my relate my relationship to how I feel about them is a humanity, isn't it? I think it's so easier. All of those characters. I think it's easier yeah. to like characters like Annie and and George because George uh, Mitchell's just so complicated and he's done so many awful things mm. that really um, make our feelings feel a bit strange when we just say we like him. It's not that easy. Yeah. But I think that's part of why this scene and this whole episode is so powerful to me, because we love him and we still love him and we also understand him. We totally know how he got there and why he killed them and that he didn't... Now he doesn't really want it and he regrets it. And I think that's why it works so well as a, um, a visualization of a victim-abuser relationship as it can be. It isn't always. But sometimes um, the abuser is loved. And they are still yeah. loved, even though they may do awful things to you. Sometimes maybe they don't always. So it's a very complicated situation. And it really shows... that it, it, I think for the viewer, it allows the room to agree with Leah and to really feel that it's cathartic what she's doing and to like um that she exposes him like that but still be allowed to um feel for mitchell and to like him as a character and root for him in a way and that these things can coexist and you don't have to choose between hating him or loving him but that it can be more complex than that i really like that uh, on a much smaller scale when i was younger my mum used to say to me if she thought i was in trouble for something she said she'd be like i don't care what you've done just tell me i'll still love you anyway <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost it's always that kind of you know that it's that not a family kind of love it's you can understand people's flaws i understand mitchell's flaws and he's you, you don't justify it but in the same way that george george knows all the wrongs yeah. but partly partly selfishly george needs mitchell yeah. he's using mitchell to some extent but also he will stand by him yeah but i do Even think that's a, bit of a different situation because george mm. 
isn't by far not as much of a victim of Mitchell as Leah is. No, no. Exactly, yeah. 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 George is the person that has seen it all and that has to make up his mind about it. Um, yeah. He, he's, he's closing his eyes and ears to a lot of yeah. it. From a viewer perspective, this is very cathartic and that it allows room for your own emotions as they are positive, negative, whatever, um, that you can still like this character while feeling validated. Um, yeah, I've never seen it anywhere. No, no, it's true, actually. No, no, not on that scale. No. It's it's quite a huge scale to yeah, go on. Yeah, because she's it? ruthless. She's really um, honest with him. This, this, this scene always, to me, always felt like it's coming straight from someone's heart. Hmm. And that's what I mean when I said earlier that I feel like this episode is a bit close in itself, that this conversation they've been having the whole episode, and it does kind of climax with this scene. Yeah, and Mitchell, I mean, it's not like Mitchell hasn't been confronted by his victims before, because obviously Lauren is a case in point, but this is just a whole yeah, it's different. other level. It's, it's, it's not just the fact he's trapped in purgatory and seeing you know, his past, he's actually face-to-face with someone who wants justice. Yeah, and she doesn't let him get away with anything. He doesn't let him get uh, his excuses, and he's trying to excuse it all the time, and she always uh, cuts in, and she always stops him. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So out of shot, we hear Leah say, budge up, (laughs) and she plants herself next to him, and she says, you can have Annie back, but there's a price. He thinks it'll be a straight swap, that he'll have to just stay in purgatory. And she says, it's not that simple. The time and cause of your death have already been set, but there are things that need to happen first. You see, you're the final piece in someone else's story, and you need to complete their journey in order to do that. They have to kill you. You're going to be killed by a werewolf, a wolf-shaped bullet. And she mimics a gun to his head with her fingers. Yeah. To me, this is starting the new conversation of the rest of the season. Yeah. Yeah. This this is the ultimate long yeah. game. What part of Mitchell does he think that... I mean, Leah's obviously got some kind of power because she's doing something. Yeah. But how Mitchell does accept this? Is it just that he's fearful or...? I think she's put him in a kind of headspace where he's very open to accept some kind of punishment. He wants to feel some kind of release to the situation they've been building up over the episode. And this is it. And I think there's a lot of room uh, for this kind of thing in his life right now. Yeah, and I guess, you know, ultimately he does get that release at the end of the the series. Uh, Leah comes out to find Annie and uh, this bit is always a bit strange in the sense that I always wonder why she's waiting at the train station (laughs) waiting room and I kind of know it's in a reference to the fact that she was killed, Leah was killed on a train but that would are we in then in Leah's purgatory? Mm, Maybe. Or am I thinking about this too much? I always thought the train station is just um, this image of moving somewhere else and that's yeah. why she's there. Yeah, but she she says something like, "Oh, the oh the train station." That was someone else. Ah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a reference to what she was just doing with Mitchell. Oh yeah, she said something about that's my free account. Yeah, no, or... uh, I think that was Mitchell. Oh, see, I didn't connect that, did I? <laughs> I think it took me some rewatches. 
Uh, Leah says, Annie can go. You will still be dead. I should make that clear. Your body, it's been over two years. Nobody really wants to see that. Uh, and Leah explains that she came through the wrong door. But next time you'll come through in the right one and it'll be Boggle and Pina Colada's 24-7. Yeah, I think they made up this uh, coming through the wrong door is bad thing on the spot. Because in the second season they were trying to drag her through literally any door. <laughs> without care. E yeah yeah but they but when they say it's bad it's bad for annie and i don't think they'd care that it's bad for annie because they're trying to drag her to hell so i don't yeah, i don't maybe. think they'd care what yeah door. maybe you might be uh <laughs> how do we think leah has this power to firstly await mitchell there and then take him to his rooms and then free annie yeah, I think that's another one of those things that the show really doesn't want you to think about. <laughs> there's a lot of those in this episode. Yeah. yeah, because because there's, you know, you could say, is there an element of the member sticks and rope at play? But there's no hint of that at all, no. is there? No, I think it, we could say it's her desire for vengeance that gives her special powers or something. Maybe. Yeah. So yes, as she mentions, uh, Annie's quite confused, tired, and and she makes a leave. But Leah says it's a long game, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll soon find out what the yeah. long game is. The forcing of Mitchell and Annie together is, like you say, probably a continuation of the conversations that's happened. That this is the next stage. Yes, I think so. I don't think the forced together really i think they both put this idea in their heads and then yeah. can roll with that so team mitchy which no one has ever called <laughs> oh, them, no. nor should no. they <laughs> i don't think there's a name <laughs> Te team Anil. Oh. no fuck it fuck it out definitely not no. that one. right annie and mitchell yeah. are reunited in the corridor that's beautiful and mitchell is kind of right where he says it was just mind games, but he, he's he's fucking spooked out by Definitely. it, so he'll believe it. And they are suddenly transported to Barry Island Beach, where I don't know. In in the process, she's got a big big perm. Oh yes. Well, I don't know if it's just if it's, if it's a big perm or if they learn to do her hair better. She's she's been to the hairdresser between purgatory and the beach. Uh, we get a little awkward, little sexy bit of a. Uh, hint of a kiss and then she looks around her and she says where are we and he says we sort of moved to wales <laughs> wales i want to go back to bristol no to purgatory <laughs> poor poor barry island yeah it's such a beautiful house she hasn't even seen it yet going back to honolulu george and nina are pensively waiting mitchell's return and as he crashes through the door on his own it sets george off in tears and there's a really fucking lovely oh, moment yeah. when that was shot and he pours the tea into his cup. <laughs> yeah. The whole ending scene is one of my favourite scenes from the whole show. It's so beautiful. What a better way for Annie to return then. Exactly. pouring a cup yeah. of tea. <laughs> and Nina even hugs Mitchell. It's yeah. never heard of before. Yeah. No. Interestingly, also, we get the return of the narration. Now, this is almost like a reset, almost, to me. Oh, you're right. Like right, recalling back to series yeah. one, saying this is a reset because Annie did the 
the opening monologue of series one. You're right. So it almost feels like this is a new start. But maybe that's why I love it so much. That's why it sticks out to me. And I really always remember this scene and this speech as one of the speeches um, for me in the show. Maybe that's why. Yeah. She says, my name is Annie Claire Sawyer and two years ago I died. But in so many ways, that's when my life began. In the company of horrors, I learned about friendship and loyalty, sacrifice and courage. And here comes a legendary hula shot. <laughs> uh, humanity isn't a species, it's a state of mind. It can't be defeated, it moves mountains, it saves souls. We are blessed as much as we are cursed. In this little enclave of the lost, I witnessed the very best of being human. Yeah. We were safe here, while outside the monster's prowl. I'm going to get part of that tattooed someday. I love that. Oh, which bit? Uh, I think the humanity isn't a species, it's a state of mind bit. That really... It, 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 it encompasses the whole premise of the show, I think, the whole point. I really love that. And it's <laughs> yeah, so it. so positive. Oh. I like this uh, positive outlook on humanity. Yeah, yeah, it is, I suppose. During this, though, Mitchell is still kind of obsessed with the TV and the news, and Leah's face comes up in the yeah. news. Credit to him this time, he turns it off. But I think it's haunting him. It's like she's... Um, I like the setup really because it ends with her having this very positive speech. There's music, they're laughing together, and in the background you've got yeah, the TV yeah. on with the thing that's haunting him, and it's going to be haunting him and the whole uh, friend group for the rest of the season because it's still there. And I think it's isn't it on while she says outside the monsters prowl. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the, the thing about Leah, which I really loved, is the fact that going through the purgatory we literally saw his first kill and his last kill oh you're right yeah we did so it's a, it's a such a again we're talking about resetting maybe that's part of the yeah i don't know it's, it's very well done to go from his first kill to the yeah, last. yeah you're right it's very poetic and he kind of gives him a few loving glances in his direction i think it's fair to say yeah and i mean there is the bit with uh, McNair and Tom at, at the end after that but if that was the ending that would have been a natural kind of happy ending yeah really would have I always forget that there's this bit with Tom and McNair afterwards because to me that's yeah, the I've... emotional conclusion of the episode I was surprised I've seen this episode so many times it's like oh yeah the, this exactly <laughs> yeah it, it feels like it should have been, it should have been the other way around yeah maybe. I think that's what uh, shows that it's the first episode of the season and not the last one yeah, true. because they leave some things yeah. open uh, to explore. Where do you think this ranks for you in terms of the episodes? Oh God, because it's fairly hard. No, I'm not asking for an exact. <laughs> I don't want your top ten or anything. Just like whereabouts, because it's obviously you've got that emotional connection yeah. to it. Haven't it's you? really difficult to say because it's. Yeah, I think it's one of the to me personally most important episodes in anything I've ever watched. Really. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the best episode ever, but it really means a lot to me and it really means a lot of comfort to me. Um, so it's, it's difficult to rank. It's, it's, really, it's up there. I really like it. It, it means a lot. But this is why everything's subjective, yeah. like any kind of art, music, TV, because we've, we will always have our own emotional connection to certain yeah. things. And maybe it's also, like you say, about a certain time in your life when you access that art. That all have more resonance. So, yeah. I mean, this is a strong episode. It's better than I remember. I know I always liked it, but going through it and analysing it... it. It definitely is. 
And I mean, it does set up uh, the season very well. They don't really have a big bad in the season, uh, not a traditional big bad. Uh, they do have no. uh, Mitchell's past that's haunting them. And so I think they did have to start off with an episode like that that really establishes um, what is at stake this season so they don't have to introduce another big bad. So we know it's all about uh, the emotional turmoil this time. The big bad of Series 3 is Mitchell's past. It is, yeah. Many thanks to Francis for coming on the podcast again. Just a little wrap-up. Sometimes in the conversation we get sidetracked, miss bits off our notes... So anything that I feel we didn't cover properly or anything I will cover at the end could call it notes, notes from the afterlife, something like that. I'll work on it. So spit spots. I actually never knew where this originated from. Obviously, the meaning of it is quite clear. Spit spot in the way that Leah uses it is hurry up, come on. But I looked into it and it's actually from Mary Poppins. Proves how uncultured I am. I have never seen Mary Poppins in full, so I had no idea it was from Mary Poppins. It does seem like quite an old reference point for someone her age. I think Leah's 22. Now, the train carriage scene where Leah confronts Mitchell. Love it. It's one of my favourite moments for the whole history of the show. There is one element to the scene which slightly grates and it always kind of has done, and it's not the fault of anyone. It is purely... A case of boring TV production issues. So the fact is the passengers in the scene in Leah are completely different from the passengers to the scene in Damage. And that's, I know some people might not have been available. If they'd just got two or three of the people that were in focus on that scene in Damage into the background of this scene, it would have just been a bit more coherent. But of course, these are, these things are shot a year apart. And I know that's not possible. Small details, but yeah, it's still a great scene. And I mentioned Mongrels earlier. I don't think it's available anywhere, to be honest. I'm not even sure it's iPlayer. I've got the DVDs of it. It's a madcap show. Very crude. Lots of songs. Quickfire jokes. And lots of pop culture references. Now, this was 2010 and 11 when Mongrels was out. A lot of these references would have aged really badly, even in the 10 years. I don't think a lot of the references in Being Human have aged that badly. There is a reference to Being Human in Mongrels. Russell Tovey actually appears in his Being Human scrubs. And Marion, I think it is, the cat, slags, slags Russell and the show off. I will try and find a link to it if it's anywhere on YouTube or anything. I'll post that on the socials. As for supernatural senses, we kind of touch on this a little sometimes. It's kind of a theme around full moon that werewolves have a an extra sense. Like George can detect people nearby or smell them or, or something like that. And that's kind of what happens with Tom when McNair is kidnapped. Later, Tom describes it as spidey senses. So does feel in keeping with the werewolf senses around full moon with tom and now it's not blood link that does it because as we later learn that's not the case i've actually had a email from a recruit uh this is from ruby and she says big podcast fan i'm very excited for episode 3.1 it's my favorite episode 
Here's my question. So Mitchell's the first and only vampire we see go through a door in the show. And of course, Leah is there to greet him and show him his past victims. It's clearly something she planned ahead of time as she slowly builds up to the reveal of her identity. But I'm curious what would happen if any other vampires were to go through a door. Do you think vampires are inevitably going to be greeted by past victims since purgatory is where many of them would be? Is an undead victim always appointed on behalf of their other victims, or is this just something Leah decided to do? If vampires like Daisy or Herrick went through a door, what do you think their experiences would be like? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. It's not something we touched on, and this email actually came a day or two after we'd done the recording. It's a difficult one, what defines as hell. Someone like Mitchell, who has a conscience, being confronted by his past victims, and being tormented with his past crimes could be a form of hell. But in terms of someone like Herrick, he doesn't have that conscience. So I don't think if all his victims were waiting for him in purgatory, I don't think he would have that same visceral reaction that Mitchell has. And as you say, this is the only time we see it. So certain elements of that could be left to our imagination since that obviously... When Mitchell does die, we don't see what awaits him. And that could be returning to purgatory. It could be a form of heaven and if he's repented for his sins. Or it could be hell, straight to hell. And that, I guess, is down to the viewer imagination, I suppose. The use of religion in being human is fluid, I guess, in the sense that it's not asking the viewer to say, I believe in hell, I believe in heaven, I believe in God and the devil. It's probably just that good versus bad. And what do you do when confronted with the bad that you've done? But it's an interesting take. It certainly uh, there's been many theories about if being human had continued into series six, if they could have done it from the limbo they were in. You know, that opens up another angle as well. That can be down to our interpretations and I just can't see someone like Herrick repenting, even in purgatory. And that wraps up episode 23 of the Box Tunnel Pod. You can help with the costs of the podcast by donating a little bit of money, £1, £2, £3, whatever you feel comfortable with, to coffee.com slash boxtunnelpod. You can contact me just like Ruby did on boxtunnelpod at gmail.com. On Twitter, it's BoxTunnelPod, and Tumblr is BoxTunnelPod. How many more times are I going to say BoxTunnelPod? Not many more, because on Instagram and Facebook, it's the BoxTunnel Survivors Group. You can become a recruit by liking or subscribing on your app of choice. If you can leave a review, please leave a review, as long as it's positive and or constructive, or I will send you to hell. We sign out as we sign in with Dog Scratched Ear by Henry's Funeral Shoe. Until next time, feel the burn. Who's your daddy? Say what you see. was the Box Tunnel Podcast, and thanks.